Welcome everybody to the Good Data Podcast. We have a great guest for you today. Garrick Sturgill will be on the show. Garrick is Senior Director at IsoFusion, which if you haven't heard of it, is a co-location cloud and networking company in the Pacific Northwest. He works in strategy and planning for network build-outs, which include last-mile fiber to the home, which is a business that we can use a lot more competition in, in my opinion, so I'm glad to see them moving into that market. Our conversation goes all over the place, from the beginnings of the internet and ARPANET, through Garrick's work in the iconic Weston building in Seattle, all the way up to the current bleeding edge of networking and low-Earth orbit satellites. Garrick packs a huge amount of knowledge into a very approachable package, and I was so happy to have him on the show. Let's go! Garrick, thank you for coming on the program. For sure. So I really wanted to talk to you because you're someone who is steeped in every level of internet history and that, you know, you've been involved in the Western building and, and building up some of the backbone of infrastructure and then moving on to data center operations and things like that. So I feel like you've touched every part of the stack and that's what I'm interested in. So I really appreciate uh, being able to talk to you. Yeah, just so, don't ask me any VMware questions. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's not really my forte either. So just like to start with your background. So what was your first job in networking when you first started? Oh, my first job in networking. Well, like first like official job was probably working for my parents. My parents owned a, or actually were a part owner of a computer store up in Seattle called Ballard Computers. And um, they sold PCs, um, not necessarily, you know, no Macs. Well, I shouldn't say that. No, they, they sold, <clears throat> I believe they sold Mac. But um, so we had like a pseudo ragtag enterprise division to where you go and you do uh, you do installs. My stepdad at the time actually ran the service department for the company. So clients would come in and, and then naturally they would need other stuff done in their offices. And um, he would send me out on these like calls. I mean, I didn't go to school for, for this, but basically just being kind of tossed out into the world and like, hey, go fix this. <laughs> um, yeah, it's usually the best way to learn really is you know it's like oh i yeah. don't really know what i'm doing but uh i'm gonna figure everything out and then it'll all kind of come into place i think yeah you know and in those offices at the time um you know it wasn't mission critical you know what i mean like mm -hmm. like um uh the networks inside of an office were like you know i mean it was like 10 base t i mean it was nothing right. people had email but it was still kind of like a novelty you know it wasn't really people didn't really companies used it internally but people weren't sending each other like business emails um right. at least in my experience i mean um i wasn't like super deep rooted into it at that point i was more of a inquisitive person 
wanting to wanting to learn and know exactly you know what was going over the wires you know i didn't really care about software back then i'm more i, I was more into fiber optics and and uh, cat5 at that point so then you got uh, somehow you you got uh connected to the western building and can you just first of all say what the western building building is and just describe it quickly yeah sure uh the western building is is the interconnection point up here in the northwest it's where um, all the uh, uh, carriers bring in uh, terrestrial fiber into a meet me room um, and then there's a couple uh, there's one pacific cable that comes into the building and then there's uh, a couple skinny routes which are uh, like regional undersea uh, fiber cable not really undersea but it, it runs in puget sound and there's a few data centers in there and the current company i work for we have we have four suites in there um you know equinex is in there uh for the region um and every single carrier you can think of has a point of presence in there um there's over 300 carriers in the meet me room currently right and it's it's kind of a somewhat tall very right square uh yeah they're yeah, it's 34, 34 stories. Um, I I would say it's probably eighty percent carrier and co-location inside the building, and then twenty percent office. I, you know, I may be wrong, but there's a lot of co-location company. Well, there used to be a lot of co-location companies in there, but now there's only like a handful. So, hmm. and then just the carrier pops, but those don't count. Right, right. So, how did you get involved in in working there? <laughs> um, well, so early on in the in the '90s, um, for my regular job, um, I was splicing fiber and um, doing uh, big at the time big data center builds, like for Amazon, Microsoft. Um, and a couple of smaller companies in the Seattle area. Well, big, I guess I did a lot of work for Boeing, did the baseball stadium, did the football stadium. And everything was all the, you know, of course, all the carrier pops. Um, everything was in the Weston building. And then um, started getting uh, contracts to do uh, fiber splicing inside the meet me room. And I mean, I, I think I spliced probably 30 or 40% of the panels in there, like in, in the beginning, um, I was always on projects in there and, you know, riding the elevator up and down, you know, you meet people like, uh, the engineer at WorldCom or the engineer at, at the time it was uh, quest. Right. And these are all like, you know, long haul engineer pop guys, you know, and they're always like, and I'm pretty social. So, you know, I'm like, Hey, how's it going? You know, Hey, are you hiring? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Cause I was tired of working outdoors doing OSP because uh -huh. yeah. it's, it's nasty. I mean, you know, I used to do, I was on emergency splice crew and, you know, doing, doing uh, fiber restorations. And I just, I didn't like it. I didn't like going yeah. up in the bucket trucks. Right. Um, I'm scared of heights, so that was always a fun thing. 
hanging off a bucket trying to pull a splice case off of a off of a pole and yeah I did, it wasn't me I, I needed to get indoors so I got a job with uh, MCI WorldCom and working on working in the 14th floor um, in the Weston building we had the whole floor plate I think the floor plates are I think they're 10,000 square feet or maybe 8,000 square feet. I forget what, I forget how big the floor plates are. Um, so I started working um, at MCI WorldCom and got thrown into troubleshooting DS3s and DS1s. They sent me to uh, uh, DMS, Nortel DMS school. Um, I got certified on the DMS 250, the DMS 500, and then um, – I got bored with that and I was like, yeah, I really like fiber and transport and I really want to learn about dense wave division multiplexing. And so they sent me to uh, Sonic school, which was, so I got my, I mean, these are certifications that we don't even talk about anymore. And I took them off my LinkedIn profile because, you know, the younger generation doesn't know what it is. So OC12, OC48, OC192. And I did, I was part of the first deployment of, uh, OC768, and then just learning as much as I, I could about, about layer one and all the intricacies of transmission and all the issues that are on fiber, you know, whether it be pol uh, polar modal dispersion issues, um, you know, I mean, everything, just trying to, trying to soak it up. And uh, I think I spent, I actually spent Y2K in the Weston building, babysitting the DMS 500, just in case the switch broke, which was pretty <laughs> funny. Even though it was right. Y2K certified, but I was the youngest, so I had to babysit the switch. Right, um, and sit out, sit out New Year's Eve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's. Funny. I mean, I totally snuck some vodka in there, but yeah, it's a good idea. What, yeah. what was the what was the contingency plan if something went wrong? <laughs> Well, Nortel sent out like a so we had all of our backup we had all of our backup tapes and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, there were all these procedures to to bring bring the switch back up online, um, and then you know load all the load all the backup tapes, um, which yeah whatever. <laughs> I mean, right, right. It would it would have took days, you know, but. Um, right. um, but yeah, we had a, we had a plan in place. I had all the DAT, so we used DAT tapes, and I had all the DAT tapes um, for like the last like month. We had them all lined up and ready to go. But yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Nothing yeah. happened, of course. Right, right. It's but, one. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things that if something like that were to happen in Y two K, it would have been bad. If something were to happen like that now, that <laughs> somehow there was some vulnerability it would be catastrophic. A lot has changed since then. But even then, you know, banking would have been screwed up. It's kind of amazing that they were able to make it work so well. That it really was seamless. Yeah, you know, and it was, a, you know, we relied more on uh, hardware and, and embedded systems, you know. Yeah. Um, and the, so you know, software-wise, like most of the gear was all just kind of command line. And... You know, I mean, you didn't have, you know, you didn't have a Windows box running, you know, your infrastructure or, you know, not that you use a Windows box now, but you know what I mean? Yeah. 
it wasn't it wasn't heavy software related which i know eventually once once everything kind of gets virtualized and just everything is software controlled when something catastrophic happens it's going to be really bad i think yeah yeah but, well i mean it's it's funny back when everything was embedded everything kind of worked you know yeah. <laughs> that you know they they didn't really even talk about firmware as much it's just when yeah. something was there it it was going to work and nowadays since everything is in software and everything needs constant updates if something hasn't gotten the latest security or firmware patch it's a huge vulnerability but you know there were security issues back then i shouldn't say that it was the good old days because it, it was still a problem but yeah it's it's interesting how i i keep talking to people about how we we kind of go backwards as we go forwards yeah you know um i mean since you know since we don't i mean we run a pretty a pretty good size infrastructure where i'm at now but i just wonder like you know some of the larger companies that don't like to talk about their failures i just wonder like how many engineers when they're doing firmware upgrades on hardware how many of those engineers actually brick the box you know like yeah um because um i know like carriers when they have to do firmware upgrades on their switches um you know you send out your maintenance notification and you're like you're doing you know I've got both of my fingers crossed right now, by, by the way. They're crossing their fingers like, please don't, don't brick, please don't brick, please don't brick, you know? I mean, yeah. but, cause I remember um, when I worked at uh, Time Warner Telecom, um, when I got more into, into like backbone engineering and stuff and Metro, and managing the Metro rings. <laughs> I remember the first week I got in there, they were using uh, Cisco 15454s to, uh, they were using them as, as metro uh, transport gear, and I was like, "Ooh, you know, they're not necessarily like carrier grade." But the, my first week there, um, the director looked at me and said, "Oh, you look smart. Why don't you do a software upgrade on the whole on all the rings?" And I'm looking at him like, "I've never done a software upgrade on that box." And you know, what's the procedure? Oh, don't worry, the knock will walk you through it. I'm like, "Yeah, the knock will walk me through it, but..." what happens if it bricks and he's like what right. is that and i'm like <laughs> i'm like well okay but um i mean that's the cool thing about kind of uh growing up in the carrier world and then switching to the data center world is that the carrier world and all the all the old school engineers that i got to learn stuff from they instilled like a lot of like checks and balances and checks and balances and change control and really talk about, you know, the, the mop, the method of procedure, um, and make sure that all your, your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed before you like push the button. It seems like to me, when I got into the whole co-location and data center industry, you know, there was only like a handful of us that came from telco. And then there was all these new guys and everything was a little bit more, kind of software based and they didn't really necessarily have all this like hardware knowledge. I mean, it really, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but it really freaked me out that m most of the network engineers that, that I met at the time didn't know what a fiber was or like they had no idea, 
you know, all the issues that could happen just on the fiber level, you know, right. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. And I'm like, and I kept on going, why is, oh, because those guys are the newbies and they only know router world. They don't know pulling the wave off of the, off of the uh, DWDM gear and plugging the wave in, into the route, you know, into the router, you know, they don't know, they don't know any of that stuff because it was mainly in the carrier world. But yeah, anyways, could go on about that stuff. I'll start sounding old. Well, start no, I mean, do you think, do you think a lot more of that has changed because of fiber adoption in the data center? Uh, I think, yeah, well, <clears throat> um, yes and no. The one thing that I noticed in the in the last like 10, 15 years is the uh, like for me, like I was considered like a super tech or a, a super tech super manager there for a while where I could, you know, deploy a network, manage the data center, rack servers, turn servers up, you know, just do simple remote hands on them you know, go turn on the generator, do a transfer, put the UPS on bypass, you know, I mean, like, kind of like, you know, when I think of a data center manager, I think of a data center manager, like, you're in charge of the whole freaking thing. Yeah. Um, now they've like, now they're like, you have like a facilities manager, and then you have a data center manager. And the data center manager doesn't necessarily even like to touch the hardware anymore. And the facility guys, they're they're scared as shit to touch the touch the servers because they're like, oh no no, we're in charge of the, you know, the HVAC and the or the crack, it's chillers and the generators and stuff. It's really weird. It's like it's kind of like all getting kind of segmented, you know. But and sometimes people look at me funny like. I'm I'm not really technically in operations anymore, but I mean, I still, you know, I still have one foot in the grave basically. And when I start talking about fiber and networks and undersea fiber and terrestrial fiber and pulling, you know, pulling the fiber um, into the building and terminating it and, you know, and then switch gears and go, Oh really? The UPS just went into bypass what's up with that? What's, you know, what's, what's going yeah. on with the, you know, did, did, uh, you know, are there back, you know, did the caps break or something? You know, it's just like, just all this, you know, I start going super technical on the, on the uh, infrastructure side, you know, and people look at me like, how do you know all that? I'm just like, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> like, aren't you the data center? I mean, I look like, I try not to be a smart ass, you know, but I look at him and I go, aren't you the data center manager? Like, I look at him like, don't you know what's going on? You know? Yeah. Well, that's so. one of my, you know, that, that does seem like it's a real problem. These, well, I, I don't know when it started, but that the facilities guys and the IT personnel or network people, they don't yeah. talk to each other. And so yeah. even when, when there's new equipment that's installed, a lot of times the, the data center manager doesn't know it. Right. Right. Which is like, which blows me away. You know, I'm just like, yeah. uh, how do you not know that that, you know, 40 ton chiller just got installed out in the yard out there? You know, it's like, right. 
<laughs> or 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 the reverse of that too. Like, oh, we just installed 200 kW worth of servers in the data center. It's like, oh wait, oh really? Uh, that means that I'm going to have to install more cooling, and nobody told me. You know, it's it's there's there's a kind of a back and forth sometimes. I don't I don't know about Colo, but it definitely happens in enterprise these days. Well, yeah, you know, and um, that just segues into. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but these large companies that have outsourced um, their data center operations, and you know, like they've they've outsourced they've outsourced it so much that that skill set is no longer in their company internally. So right. they're always so they're always you know, no offense to the consultants, but they're always you know they're always relying on these consultants, but not all consultants really kind of know what they're talking about. Because one, they've never actually ran a data center before, so they don't, you know, it's like, unless you've been in operations and you, and you kind of understand how those things work, you know, it's like, if they were all perfect and they're, you know, and they're all running perfectly in our world, you know, then that would, then that would be the case, but they don't run perfectly. They break all the time. I mean, they like, you know, stupid stuff breaks in a data, like the dumbest things break in a data center. Yeah. Like, why did that break? You know, like, but, like uh, EPO panels break. Is, <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of the world, really. Yeah, I've removed EPOs out of data centers because yeah, <laughs> they're just you know I'm like, I you know I don't know. No, they're I mean the, the EPO is is definitely a single point of failure by design. And, yeah, uh, you know if if that if somebody miswires a relay then suddenly you shut everything down. So, you know, it, it's it's a real problem. Well, yeah, you mean like, yeah, like the uh, the shunt trips hanging off the fire panel to the crack units and all of a sudden uh, your fire panels, something goes haywire inside the software and sends a signal and then all of a sudden you're like standing in this room where, where you're on the edge, by the way, like, like if the cracks turn off, it's gonna shoot up to 100 degrees, no problem. And all yeah. of a sudden they go boom, and you're like, what the? And you're you and the first thing I would do is I'd look up. I'm like, okay, the lights are still on, so that's not it, you know. And I'm like, yeah, <clears throat> I've had numerous people hit hit EPO buttons for stupid reasons, you know. And mm -hmm. I'm just like, some you know some cities require it, um, but yeah, I would just play dumb and be like, oh, nope, there's no EPOs in here. When we yeah. moved, there was none installed, so we're grandfathered in, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not even necessarily required by code anymore. Um, depends on, on local jurisdiction, but you don't even necessarily have to have an EPO button at the doors anymore. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, we don't I mean, <laughs> we have a number be, of data centers without that. Yeah, that, I mean, there used to be there used to be the EPO button, and then there used to be the, uh, I mean, I worked in, uh, in Halon data centers. So we had a Halon, we had a Halon button right next to the EPO. Right. So, you know, and the procedure was like, oh yeah, if you see fire or smoke, hit the EPO first and then dump the Halon, but make sure you're out outside of the thing because it's going to suck the oxygen out. You're like, right. oh yeah. <laughs> right. But that was a long time ago. They don't let you have Halon anymore. So. Yeah, but they, yeah, it's still grandfathered though. Um, yeah, yeah, I still yeah. see it every once in a while.
Today's episode is brought to you by Green Lane Design. Green Lane has been designing, engineering, and building critical facilities for over 10 years, including major enterprise customers as well as co-location facilities. GLD has designed and developed an integrated stack of design disciplines. If you would be interested in a free assessment, go to greenlanedesign.com, click on contact, and mention the podcast. So we, we already touched on a bunch of different things. Uh, we we kind of skipped over the transition from networks to data centers. So oh sure, well that's how pretty, did that happen? That's pretty easy. Um, so once again, I was riding the elevators up and down in the Weston building, and um, uh, there's there was this guy in the in in the elevator, and he's like, "Hey, what do you do?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm I'm the senior guy at uh, MCI Worldcom up here on the 14th floor," and they were like. I think they were on the 12th floor and they were doing a build out and the guy looked at me and he goes, so you're real familiar with, uh, with, with COs and stuff. I go, Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, at the, t- and at that, at that particular time, um, so, you know, we owned UUNet and we had the big, we had the big backbone routers in there. And I think they were force tens, these big like jet engines that we had in there. Uh-huh. And, um, I was like, yeah. He's like, well, what kind of experience do you have? I go, man, I know about routers and servers, and you know, been in at the time. I, I, I see how long had I been in the building? I don't know. I've been in the building like six or seven years. And he's like, yeah, I want a job? And I'm like, uh, doing what? <laughs> <laughs> and he took me to the floor, and and um, it just looks so nice and clean, you know, like it was just clean. It didn't have, you know, seven. 734 coax running everywhere and twisted pair, you know, hanging out right. of the ceiling and stuff. And there weren't any, I mean, there was a DC battery plant, but um, it was, you know, brand new, wasn't archaic looking. Um, I didn't, it didn't look like you could get shocked anywhere inside there, you know? <laughs> right. And, um, and I was like, this is pretty. And, um, you know, he said, he looked at me um, and he goes, well, how much you make now? And I'm like, I'm like, I don't make a lot. And he's like, well, how much do you want to make? And I'm like, I want to make this much. And he went, okay. And I went, what? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, well, I'll work for you. And that was above net. So, or a uh, Metro media above net. So I became the, the senior, the senior data center guy for, uh, um, Metro Media above net running the 12th floor in the Western building. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the best of both worlds for me. One, I get to get into the whole data center co-location business. And two, it was a, a massive dark fiber company, you know, which was, you know, I could do that in my sleep. So I was running, I was running our splice crews and uh, building out the backbone down the West coast and, we were deploying the Juniper M160s, which were the biggest, the biggest big iron that they had, with the um, OC192 blades on them. I remember we did uh, Juniper, Juniper in the corn, Cisco on the edge when I was out above net. But so I was part of Backbone Engineering. I wasn't necessarily like a network engineer, but I was a layer one guy, and um, just basically took care of the metro and. Uh, the long haul, but didn't really get into the rest of the stack 
I never really, um, I never really was like, kind of like a, like what I call like a hardcore network engineer. Cause my friends were, 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 were that. So wh whatever I needed done, I could call, I could call my friends and they would just, you know, I'd give them access to the core and they would go in and do stuff. But right. Which was totally not right. Totally illegal. But <laughs> well, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. did you, did you have anything to do with any of the underwater or undersea stuff in the Western building or that was just kind of no, that was, was there? Yeah, that was existing. That was, uh, that cable is the uh, PC one cable that goes, goes on the North Harbor point, which is North of Seattle up, up North of a town called Linwood. It's in a place called Muckleteo. Um, no, that was existing. It's a, it's a pretty old cable system. No, but just, just, um, just going to um, going to Pacific Telecom Conference every year. Um, I think I'm coming up on my 19th year or something, going to PTC coming up this this January. But I was just always a a fan. Now I did I did go out on a splice ship and I did go and um, participate in in um, in a repair of a cable. Um, out in the water, but um, that was like a that was like a hookup. Um, you, you know, I've never. To? Yeah, I mean, I had some connections uh, mm -hmm. through AT and T, and um, I got to go out on the ship and and do some stuff. But um, I actually started a, a company with some friends. It was called um, it was called One Ocean, and it was kind of ambitious. Uh, we were trying to figure out how much it was going to cost to map the ocean in uh, in high res, the full ocean. And the company that that funded us in the beginning was a company called Global Seas. It was a good friend of mine. He owns this big fishing company, and he had a he had an ocean class mapping vessel. And the funny thing was, is like I would go to PTC, and I I would actually know uh, which companies were dropping cables in the water because my buddy had the largest private ocean class mapping vessel on the West coast. And he did all that work. So he would have all that data. And originally that, that data was all like vector data of the bottom of the ocean and stuff. Um, that's, we were going to take that data and put it in and build a database that would be easily accessible for companies like cable companies to look, you know, to look at the topography, of the bottom of the ocean and see where they're going to uh, lay a cable. I mean, that was, that was what, what we wanted to do, but making money at it, you know, that's, you know, yeah. it, I, I saw, I saw your white paper on that. I think it was like project infinity or something. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 It was, uh, um, I learned a lot, you know, I learned a lot about our oceans. I learned a lot that scared me. And if anything, it just made me more of a hippie and, <laughs> Well, I saw I saw in the in the thing that you there was actually a lot of information about like fisheries and things like that. It wasn't just underwater mapping of fiber. It was like, you know, there was there was a bunch of stuff in there about rockfish and things like yeah. that. Is that part of what made the difference for you? Yeah, I mean, just really learning about how important the ocean is for all of us. You know, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's the lungs of the planet, and 
you know, laying all these cables across the, across the Pacific or the Atlantic. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it's not as destructive as somebody who does a dragnet um, across the ocean um, or undersea mining. But yeah, I mean, I learned, I learned a lot about the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I really wished that we really pursued that mission. Of course, it went, it went a different direction because some, somebody decided to hire the, the freaking CTO of the cloud division from IBM. And that guy came in and he like messed everything up. But, you know, for some reason yeah. the investors wanted to make money and I was like, whatever. <laughs> I want to yeah, build, what, I want to build ships and go map the ocean. So that's always what screws it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Having to actually yeah. return revenue. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Well, it's, it's an interesting project though, because uh, I mean, the, the two parts of it are so important and they're so not related. The, the uh, ecology of it. I mean, in terms of, in terms of the money-making, like if you were to go into ecology, you'd probably get funding from a government or university or something like that. Whereas if you're mapping the seafloor for undersea cables, you're yeah. probably doing it for, you know, telecoms or you know a military application or something so it's like you know who who are you working oh, for trust me man we talked to the navy we almost had the navy um convinced to give up to give up some maps not strategic maps but other but other data that they had that wasn't you know that wasn't classified yeah and uh talking to noah you know um noah is just you know, they do a lot of good things for us, but they were just kind of ridiculous. I mean, they were stuck in the 1950s and um, with their thinking, you know, not technology wise, but their thinking and the way that they do things. And yeah, I mean, I just, I learned a lot of stuff, man. I mean, just how, how things work governmental wise and public private sector and um, it's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of secret things that we found out about the oceans and what certain companies are doing out there. And, you know, they don't necessarily want you to know what they're doing out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things in the ocean that people should really research. I mean, that, that information's out there. I mean, we took like three years doing it, but, um, there's a lot of stuff that that needs to be talked about that people just aren't aware of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I find it really interesting, but I guess we should get back to. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I I keep wanting to be like, oh, but but what about uh, strategic assets and and you know the Russians were were snooping our fiber and you know yeah. we could talk about that for a long time, but I'm like, oh, oh yeah, we can yeah, yeah we can <laughs> we can talk into that you know we, yeah you know, I mean because uh, those those are such important strategic assets just yeah. security wise everything you know if a country were to attack those cables it's yeah. kind of like an act oh, of war not, and you know so so, so we're not going to talk about those special submarines that can intercept the cables okay that's cool yeah. <laughs> i don't know can you <laughs> um, i'm a civilian sure yeah <laughs> No, so, I, you know, so I don't want. I don't want to get down. I don't want to go down too far down that rabbit hole yeah. because there's a bunch of brainwashed people in the country right now. That when you start talking about that, they're like, "Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist." Yeah, okay. Uh, time to stop talking. 
So yeah, it's but, funny when somebody says conspiracy theory. There are a lot of conspiracies in the world. All that conspiracy <laughs> means is that a bunch of people are talking with themselves and not with anybody else. So a lot of conspiracy theories are crazy, and there are conspiracies out there. Yeah, I deal uh, in conspiracy fact, not right. theory, just fact. <laughs> <laughs> so. But so how did you get to where you are now doing strategy and kind of current uh, work? First of all, what is what is your current position? Uh, my my current title is director of carrier relations, kind of a little bit of uh, network strategy, you know, a network strategy, meaning, uh, hey, where should we build or um, how should we connect, you know, these two networks together? um strategy and then relationship or relation wise you know just kind of tapping my buddies that work in in the carrier world and stuff and um you know privy privy to where they're going to be building next and um you know how 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 you can um leverage wherever their new builds are at to augment your your network and, you know, in the long run, make you more money and, you know, touch more, touch more clients and more people that you weren't be able, weren't able to touch before. So. So did some of that knowledge of, you know, how the networks came to be what they are today, does that help you kind of pay that forward to figure out how to move on to building them in the future? Um, yeah. Um, you know, I hang out with, um, I'm, I mean, hang out friends. I'm friends with some, some people that, that plan, you know, big strategies across the planet. And, you know, we meet and talk on a regular basis. Um, you know, and we talk about, we don't necessarily talk about like cable security and stuff, but I mean, it is a topic when we're, when we're talking about, undersea fiber and terrestrial cable and just how unsecure it is. Yeah. Um, uh, we talk about um, sea level rise, uh, natural disasters, hurricanes, you know, tidal surge. Um, and then, you know, on the, tr on the terrestrial terrestrial end, we talk about, um, you know, fires and earthquakes and you know stuff like that just you know it's basically just it's basically like a big mitigation discussion right you know or yeah. what if is there a lot of uh interest in this sort of spacex uh low earth orbit um satellite stuff that that is in the works but not deployed yet well <laughs> funny you should say that um yeah, I mean, I've known about some technology for a really long time right now, and, and it actually just became, or the public can talk about it now. Um, they just released it a couple of years ago, but it had been around for years. But um, yes and no. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Using antennas to shoot up into space. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm freaking terrified of waveguides that go to those dishes. Um, of course, now there's digital 
Um, but it takes a lot of power to to receive that stuff and transmit transmit that stuff to to the birds. Or may, I, mean, I, I haven't been in that industry for so long that like I don't really pay attention to it too much. Yeah. Um, but um, I know that the military for years has had higher bandwidth on their birds. Um, I don't know how big the transponders are on the on the Leos and the Mios that say like SpaceX is launching or um, or somebody else. I mean, I haven't really looked into it. I don't know. I mean, I don't hang out with the broadcast people anymore. I used right. to hang out with a lot of broadcast people um, that were basically satcom guys and stuff. Um, and you know, because originally the transponders were 45 megabits so that you could, you could just deliver everything via a DS three and you could just put it back. You could put it up onto the bird and the code, you know, the codex, um, everything was, you know, basically the software was all the same all the way through the system. So yeah. you didn't have to like convert, convert, you know, <laughs> Um, so I don't, I don't know, um, I, you know, I mean, if you're having a, if there's a Leo hanging out up there, I mean, I mean, that bird would have to be like really shielded. I mean, there's all this, I mean, there's all this stuff that, that, you know, that you, like you and me, I'm like, I'm not an astrophysicist, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, like, um, you know, you remember you remember in the COs, uh, like a long I mean, not too long ago, we weren't allowed to take our cell phones in there because it would interfere with the gear. Yeah. So, you know, um, and I'm sure they compensate for that up there in space, but um, I mean, there's all kinds of crap up there that could, you know there's natural disasters up in space. I mean yeah, sure. <laughs> it's like um the yeah. solar flare could, you know. Especially, they're talking about putting. It's a crazy idea. They're talking about putting like four thousand small satellites in low Earth orbit. It's supposed to be very high bandwidth, but I'm very skeptical of it because of a the cost and and the scope of the project. But it's supposed to be ultra low latency. It's supposed to be the be all and end all of all this stuff. And it's like, well, maybe. Well, but it's very complicated. If if I remember correctly, I don't know if it was a Mio. The last time I paid attention to milliseconds up to the bird, I was doing a satellite project for a billionaire that just recently passed away up here. We were getting 800 milliseconds up to the bird, and then 800 mil, and then so we'd go up to the bird, we'd we'd bounce and then bounce it down to one of the yachts. But it was 800 milliseconds up and 800 milliseconds down. Yeah. But I don't think it was a Leo. I think it was a Mio. Mm -hmm. But I mean, latency is latency, and you know, like the math behind that, and the distance, and the carrier carrier wave. If I'm saying that correctly, I don't know if it's a carrier wave. I, I I forget what the terms are, but sure. I mean, unless they're using like free space optics or something like a laser, I don't, you know, I don't know. I haven't really looked yeah. into it. Okay, I, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, it you, is. How about I, you and me go down to SpaceX and be like, hey man, we want to this technology. <laughs> But, uh, I wouldn't mind. That'd be very cool. I keep trying to keep up with the next big thing, but at the same time, you can't. There's so many next big things that it's really hard to say. Um, yeah. So, 
Is, is yeah. there? It, uh, let me ask you that. What do you see a next big thing that that is growing in in either data centers or or networks? I think I think uh, incorporating. Um, well, I mean, I just got a new phone last Wednesday that I've been waiting for for 15 months for to hit into my hot little hands. Um, I bought the red hydrogen phone. Oh, yeah. And it's got a format on here called uh, 4V, which is holographic. They're holopix. I've been shooting pictures for the last week. I've been having a blast and doing 4V uh, holographic video and stuff on the phone. I'm, I would have to say that finally virtual reality, what's the other, there's two other terms, um, augmented reality. And then there's another one. Um, like I'm mixed reality or? mixed. Yeah. Mixed reality. I think, um, I think that, that that is going to be coming more into play for us having more, tactile visual type control of stuff and and it'll be in the data center meaning instead of having a bunch of knock screens up on a wall you just put your goggles on and you have your your power gloves and your you know your software controlling stuff that you know in the data center or even maybe even troubleshooting a server you know going in or doing like a reboot or you know like literally taking like an augmented reality, you know, like moving your head to the power button where the little dots at. Have you ever played with, with augmented reality and, and yeah, yeah. server, you know, I mean like cool stuff like that. Um, technology wise, you know, what, what, what would I like to see? I would like to see thermal, thermal electric being a little bit more um, adopted in our, in our, in, um, in our industry. You know, most likely Apple and Google and people like that are playing with it. Um, I'm not a big fan of fuel cell generators. I'm a, I'm a fan of the hydrogen aspect of it, but I'm not a fan of how you get the hydrogen because there's a lot of stuff they don't talk about, you know, when you're extracting hydrogen out of gas or natural gas and stuff, that's the byproduct that they have an issue with, like trying to get rid of the byproduct. Right. Uh, but you know, whatever, it's a big freaking toy and those companies, you know, that spend billions on renewable energy, but they really have to ask themselves, what is renewable energy? You know, you know, solar is wind is nuclear is not freaking renewable. You know, dams are not renewable energy. We have all these, uh, all these ex submarine nuclear scientist dudes that work in the data center well maybe we should give them 40 megawatt reactors to play with inside the data centers i don't know i would love to see a 40 a 40 megawatt reactor inside of a data center i think it'd be really cool i was um, literally i was talking to somebody about that you know he, he was talking about you know having steam turbines and stuff on data center campuses um and he was a nuclear engineer when he first started so yeah it's interesting i mean you know the the thing about nuclear is you're right it's it's not sustainable but there actually is a lot of fissile nuclear fuel on the earth sure, sure. It, it runs it'll run out eventually so right it's that's a tough one <laughs> yeah uh, no no exactly i you know i mean there's there's some other exotic technologies out there you know um shit i even saw this thing called a 
they came and demoed it for me. This was like seven years ago. Compressed air UPS that was like a flywheel. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, now that's cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like the runtime was how many bottles of of, of air you can put in the in the system, and uh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. I'm a I'm a flywheel fan. When I was at AboveNet, we ran high tech flywheels in our data centers. I mean, they were a pain in the ass, but I mean, but they were cool. And it was the coolest thing. You know, you walk into yeah. this this data center and here's this like flywheel hooked up to the generator, you know, with a clutch. And I'm like, Oh, this is cool. Yeah, I used to, I used to love, I used to love uh, doing uh, quarterly tests with those things. I mean, it was just rad. It was like, man, this is like high tech, but not really. It's been around right. since the, I don't know, man. I, you know, I, don't, I, I want the technology to change, but yeah, it sometimes, it sometimes feels like everything has been real incremental in the past few years and uh i know i know that there there's a lot of opportunity to make cool things happen but you know going back to flywheels like flywheel is in some ways low energy and, and there's no battery so there's no disposal but it's you know it's something that's spinning you know twenty thousand rpms or something like that and it's a, yeah. it's a giant rock so it is actually also dangerous it's it's just a weird they are cool though i i you know yeah. just almost hearing the the high-pitched whir of it it's like Oh, this, yeah. is, this is a real oh, no, device. It was super loud when you go into our, yeah. our go into our generator room where the where the flywheels are at. I just remember every six months we had to like we had to sh uh, shut them down and replace the brushes on them. Um, but I, I think the newer flywheels you don't have to do any of that. But um, I mean these things were like you know, <laughs> I mean these flywheels were the ones that NATO used. You know, I mean they're just like um, big gnarly pieces of hardware you know I mean, yeah so but yeah i mean one of the things that i i worry about the most is is security that i i think there really needs to be some innovation in security that you know we're not there have been so many hacks that have happened but the problem is that it's not usually a security issue it's somebody <laughs> doing something stupid or, or a human error issue so it's like yeah, you can't. You're not gonna. You have to have something that beats human error in in networks, and you know, not just giving some HVAC contractor uh, VPN keys. I mean, it's it's, it's <laughs> a lot of time. It's simple stuff. When we had talked before, you had talked about you're interested in kind of the security and almost like the black hat of of how do you actually see behind the curtain and and what you know what is actually going on within things that you're not supposed to see most of the good security people that i know started off being like black hat hackers yeah and because they they you know they think they think like the opponent you know like oh what would he do you know and what's funny is like um most of the most of the really good security people that i know are all ex-network engineers because they're playing you know because most of the security stuff that happens now is coming across the network. So um, you really got to, you really got to know, you really got to be like a network engineer um, to really go and infiltrate the system and be a systems guy and stuff. But, you know, I mean, there's all, there's all kinds, you know, physical security, but, but on the other hand, you know, nothing is secure. I, you know, I mean, you're, you're dreaming if you think that things are secure. But it's all about mitigation and what your procedures are and 
you know, what you're trying to protect, who has freaking access to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's so many organizations that are so sloppy. I mean, people don't even do background checks on people anymore, you know? I mean, I remember, you know, I mean, seriously, nobody does background checks on anybody. Like, they just yeah. call their previous employer. Is he a nice guy? Yeah, he's totally cool. Okay, great. He's hired, you know? I mean, right. uh, some people... Some people say, well, it doesn't matter if you're doing a background check on somebody. And I'm like, um, sure, you know. I mean, everybody has their lives out there on the Internet. Yeah, I mean, I, social engineering is, is easier yeah. than it has ever been in history. Uh, yeah. You know, people, people use their dog's name as their password, and then they have their dog's name in 50 different places in Facebook. And <laughs> it takes three seconds to figure that out. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people are... Uh, I don't want to say people are sheep, but people are sheep. Frankly, I'm really surprised that something massive hasn't happened on a, like on a global scale, you know, but I know, I mean, I know that stuff does. That's like saying there isn't there. We're the, we're the only intelligent uh, planet in the solar system. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I go to, I didn't go this last summer, but um, I usually go to DEF CON um, but I go for different reasons. I don't go to I don't go to Black Hat or anything like that because I'm not an info set. I don't I don't care about info security. I don't you know. I mean I don't have a Facebook page. I mean I have a LinkedIn profile, but I don't have an Instagram account or any of that stuff. If you're gonna reach me, you can you know either through LinkedIn or my SoundCloud account. So yeah. <laughs> or if you have my phone number, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, social I, social engineering is a big thing, man. I mean, unless you're kind of a hardcore security guy, you don't your your radar isn't really on, you know. I mean, yeah. most most IT guys are in charge of security at companies. I mean, you could easily social engineer those guys easily because they're really, you know, because they're like they're not. Uh, what am I trying to say? They're not. They're not. Um, they're not paying attention, you know. But right, you know, it's not their fault because. The, the company that they work for, you know, doesn't have training or policies in place to train them to make sure that they're not getting socially hacked. Right. Well, not only that, but I, I have seen really shitty passwords on pretty important, you know, <laughs> the routers and things like that. And I, <laughs> I almost want to slap somebody. It's like, you think this, you know, just because it has an exclamation point in it doesn't mean that it's going to stop anybody. The, 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 the password security, I mean, there are ways to do it right, and it's yeah. not that hard. You know? Yeah, you should, if you're, like, you should have at least 16 characters. Yeah. And, meaning, you know, uppercase, lowercase, numbers, symbols, whole nine yards, like, in, you know, right. in, in this, you know, a 16, a 16 character, I mean, to crack, to crack 16 characters, I mean, that's, you know, doing a brute force, a brute force hack. I mean, have fun with that, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, at one point, I was I was trying to explain bits of entropy to somebody. Uh, and I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I just made a mistake. Uh, actually, you know, just make a long password. Try not to use dictionary words as best you can. You know, yeah. it's, it's amazing that something so important goes by the wayside constantly. It's not just yeah. a little bit. It's, it's constant with really important stuff. You know, what really scares me is is how fast stuff's getting now. Uh, I mean, I don't do this stuff anymore. I probably I probably wouldn't know how to 
I, I wouldn't know where to start to write like a brute force crack software, but with all the, uh, with everything speeding up and getting access to like big GPU rigs and, you know, machine learning and, you know, all this other stuff, you know, it's like, oh, great. <laughs> it's like, yeah. now you can build this like supercomputer for pretty cheap, you know, for as much as buying like a, a kick-ass gaming system, you can build this like, this deep, deep thinking thing <laughs> that, yeah. that's in your house. And you can just train it just to crack passwords, you know, you know, or you, and, you can, you can buy a botnet for like 200 bucks. Exactly. <laughs> crazy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't want to get into that. You know, yeah. no, we don't, want, we don't want to train the little kids that are listening to this. What's no, that's true. Botnet? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, it, it is something that happens that, you know, a, a DDoS attack is easier than ever to launch. And not only could you do a DDoS attack, but you could also do like a distributed, any kind of attack, like a right. SQL injection attack or something. And, and yeah. yeah, it can, you can really do a lot with very little. So, yeah. Well, yeah. In that the DDoS, the DDoS command is not that big. Like, like if I were to take my fingers and put them on the screen right now, it's like an inch, it's like an inch long. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, and it's very simple. You know, you look at it and go, God, really? That's it? Well, yeah, yeah. but you've got to know how to like, you got to know how to use that command. That's, that's, right. but now they, but like in the back of 2600, there, <laughs> there's guys that sell like, that sell boxes already set up to do, yeah. uh, to do DOS, you know, and they're, and these things are so sophisticated. They got like a built-in pineapple in them. And so like, you could literally like take it and go to a coffee shop and set it up in a coffee shop that's got a free Wi-Fi in there and you can you can launch it you know it's it's just like oh why are you guys selling that shit you know it's yeah. like I'm like yeah. it's better it's better if they if they pay their 300 bucks and go to Defcon and learn how to build that build that stuff solder it I'm like don't right. build it and then sell it to, you know and I'm like but it is what it is you're kind of out of the specific data center management game, right? Or are you still somewhat involved? I'm still somewhat involved. I mean, I'm I'm kind of uh, in my new company, in my new job. I'm not. I'm more of a answering questions when when they ask me questions and what do you yeah. think about this type thing. And in our data center manager, he's a really smart guy. He'll come to me with. Uh, questions and stuff you know i mean i try to work with them you know infrastructure he's not a big infrastructure guy like meaning like fiber and and copper wise so he kind of taps me for that stuff but he's pretty good operational wise you know generators and cracks and craze and all that but fun you, stuff. you used to be in the poe game right trying to improve efficiency in the data center is that something you still think about or is that not as much on your radar yeah, I still think about it. I mean, you know, everybody's got an opinion, you know, even though, you know, I'm in the co-location business right now. I mean, I still think we should be building, you know, lights out facilities that are like fully automated. But even that, even even me saying that scares the shit out of me. Like, what did you just say? Fully automated robots? Yeah. What are you talking about? But the less the less human interaction in the data center, the better. Yeah, efficiencies, PUE. I just need to get rid of PUE. It's just, you know, whatever. 
kind of agree with that. I mean, it it has its place. It's helpful. Yeah. Uh, sure. At least, you know, if you if you make one change and your PUE gets better without changing any other variables, yeah, that's good to know. Yeah. But you know, I was just talking to somebody about how it's not fair to judge, you know, one data center against another or one time that a data center is running against another time that a data center is running. Because, you know, as soon as you change the IT load within the data center, your PUE is going to change without changing anything else. So it's not. It's not a fair comparison. If you if you just keep adding servers, your your PUEs might well get better because things like transformers and crack units and stuff have overhead and chill water loops. So those are just going to work more efficiently as you keep adding. So it's just trying well, to explain that to people isn't yeah. quite fair. You know, and the and the comp so the company I work at now, we've got, you know, I would call them five five traditional data centers where you have chilled water and stuff. Um but the, the big facility that I came from, South Hill, which was also called Centaris, was 100% outside air with evaporative, evaporative cooling. So for the longest time there, I was like the poster child at the data center conferences for 100% outside air. You know, I had this big upside down aircraft carrier, you know, basically. So we, you know, we pulled, we pulled, pulled cold air in, blew it down with big uh, air handlers. And uh, we had everything, uh, the hot row was contained and we pulled the hot air down and out. So in that data center, the hotter, the better, because we used to, we would reuse the server heat to uh, keep, keep the proper temperature to the floor. We're, we're doing mm -hmm. ash ray, uh, 72, 78 degree air to the floor. So when there was no load in that data center, it was a pain in the ass. We actually had to turn on heaters, which just yeah. totally screwed up the PUE. Yeah, the 100% outside area was fun. You know, I ran that facility for eight years or whatever, seven years. I told myself if I ever were to build a data center, um, I would never use chilled water or anything. If I was going to do anything like that, it'd probably be either total total immersion, not necessarily uh, water water chilled uh, uh, backplane cabinets, because those things kind of freaked me out a little bit, but. Uh, using um, like a a dielectric liquid to pull the oh, heat yeah. out. So uh, so like uh, like a uh, mineral oil or yeah. like uh, I saw 3M had like they were using their Novec material, which is a fire suppressant, but that can be yeah. used as a dielectric uh, yeah. heat exchange. So so you're saying just to when you said immersion, you're actually saying take the uh, computer, the the chips and and hardware and putting it into a liquid in a vat basically yeah and then and then using that circulating that or allowing that to evaporate off the chips and then yeah. uh having a of heat course. exchanger or something that that yeah, gets yeah. rid of that heat yeah yeah totally totally i mean i mean unfortunately in our you know in our environments there's all these different there's all this different hardware and different hardware configurations and you know so it'd have to be you know it'd have to be something that was just like crazy built you know like the server would just have to be just like the server that does everything <laughs> you <know>? right, right. <laughs> which is yeah. really not, which is really not the case most of the time right so. it would all have to be specialty hardware and you probably wouldn't want to put spinning disks in the liquid no no it, it'd be all uh it'd probably be that new stuff was it M mme or that yeah. new storage medium you know i mean there there's other stuff i've been toying around in my in my head about figuring out how to actually pull that heat pull that heat away but 
not using like a medium, like a 3M medium or, you know, anything traditional, um, blowing cold air across it or something. But really, this is that fringe, the fringe science, you know, figuring out really how to how to pull the heat off of the stuff or. Like the fun stuff, yeah. Yeah, the crazy stuff. <laughs> well, the, the last thing, I, you know, it's funny because one of the reasons I actually wanted to talk to you is that somehow a theme for this podcast has already been algorithmic music and you know i i already interviewed somebody a friend of mine who um is is a synthesizer manufacturer uh yeah. he, he designs synths and yeah. I know that you you kind of have a, a house dj background yeah so, i'm sitting in my studio right now actually yeah well that's not i mean i feel like the sound quality is better than usual because of that i guess but is it so that's something you're kind of still doing yeah, yeah, I still do it. If you wanted to, if you had any tracks that I can embed in in this episode, I would put them. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, if there's something I could do. Yeah, I don't think you could do it because I haven't yeah. even done the work to ask permission about remixing yeah. the track. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sit I'm actually sitting in my studio right now, and you know, I'm 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 staring at I'm staring at you on my my dedicated Mac Mini which is uh, strictly designed for Ableton or not designed, but I just, it's dedicated just for Ableton live. Nice. Um, actually Ableton suite. And um, um, yeah, I've been involved in electronic music since I was like 16. Um, I started DJing when I was 16. <clears throat> of course, vinyl, uh, 12 inch records. Um, I played house music for probably 20 years. Um, I was a rave promoter um, in the 90s here in Seattle. I had a company called Cat and a Half Productions. Um, we hired, you know, big name DJs, uh, Moby, Doc Martin, Mark Farina, um, David Morales. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, Jesse Saunders, uh, Manuel Pippin. Uh, DJ Tracks, uh, Frankie Knuckles. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Do you remember that? You remember that movie um, uh, where there were these guys that were sitting in a record store, and they were like having arguments about music, and you know, the younger generations coming in, and they're like telling them, like, you don't deserve to listen to that music. Oh, like, like uh, High Fidelity is that High that? Fidelity? Yeah. <laughs> that scene in High Fidelity. I'm just like. One day I was like, oh, my God, I'm turning into that dude. <laughs> um, just recently, like this summer, um, I started uh, promoting and producing shows again. Yeah. Uh, I, I produced three shows in Seattle. Um, one of them was at – they're called Lovely Day. Um, we got together a bunch of, a bunch of DJs. I, I personally didn't play because the technology is now all – jump drives and you know i mean i have a serato setup but i don't ever use it uh i just don't have time you know i just yeah it, it's it's crazy and even now like i'm looking at all this this hardware in my studio i mean i have a a roland tra a roland tv3 an seao2 uh boutique synth modular synth i have the zero coast modular synth I have the uh, Ableton Push, and um, I have this guitar, which 
I got a nice Ibanez guitar that I actually have to get it restringed. And I don't really know how to play guitar, but um, this is like a hollow body electric guitar. It's pretty sweet. But I bought this. Yeah. Um, I bought these um, these um, these things that go over the frets to where it, where it has LED lights, and it teaches you how to play songs and stuff. So uh, you know, at some point, you know, I wanted to incorporate that into into processing, and you know, and play with that stuff. But you know, just like just like any with anything in technology, you know, if you're like super super into it. You know, you have all this really cool stuff, but the problem is, is that finding the time to sit down and actually um, create and and make music is, it's like a, uh, I mean, I'm struggling with it now. And, and, you know, Ableton Live is a beast. Like, if you don't work on that thing, like, every day or every week, when you go back to it, you're like, ah, oh, you know, like, oh, I have to reconfigure it and like, right. you know, do all this. So it's like a learning process all over again. And, and for me, like with all this gear that I have, I bought all outboard gear because I had this fantasy that I was just going to go play live. And I have yet to go play live, but I got some pretty kick-ass gear. Yeah. And when I hook it all up and get everything all synced up and I'm like, I'm like creating tracks on the on the 808. I mean, it sounds awesome. And then I got all weirded out because I'm kind of an audio file nerd. There wasn't enough bass for me in the studio, so I went and I bought a top of the line KRK Active 10 inch sub that's totally tunable. So now there's plenty of bass. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, it's just it's part of that. It's part of that trying to keep the uh, technical side of me alive, meaning yeah. working with my hands and touching hardware and not necessarily relying on, on, um, on the software. Um, you know, I've been slowly taking a class that Deadmau5 um, has on Masterclass. Masterclass is this, this online teaching course. And, you know, like Dead, Dead Mao, you know, everything that he does is all completely inside uh, software. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, me personally, I didn't want that. I still wanted the, the tactile analog or analog type touch of the hardware. Um, but I mean, but that's just me. I mean, some people thrive in the software arena. I don't thrive in the software arena. I thrive in the tactile, touchy feely type stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny too because it it means that you're actually doing somewhat of a performance on stage instead of just hitting an iPad. Yeah, I mean, even now, like when we do the DJ shows and stuff, you know, it's just crazy. Like you got the Pioneer 2000 Nexus uh, decks, and instead of bringing your record bag in, they bring these they bring their jump drives and they plug their jump drive. Or their sorry, jump <laughs> jump drive into the system, and then it uploads to this screen. And um, the crazy part about about whether it's Serato or or the Pioneer decks, if you get lazy, and if you're if you're technically good, meaning when you're dropping the beat, you need to drop it on the one. And a lot of people don't know that. Like 
you know, they'll like try to blend, they'll blend tracks together and they'll get all confused because like the vocals will, you know, will, will stack on each other, but they'll press the auto button and the pioneer decks. Like if you have your music completely, there's a, there's a program that they, that they want you to use. It's called record box. You load all your music into record box and it, it literally goes in and scans everything and tells you where all the breaks are at and everything. And yeah. if you, press the auto button it will literally uh drop it'll drop the track in and it'll literally mix everything for you now um a lot of djs do that a lot of those like poser djs in vegas those big ones will do shit like that i mean you can't i mean the, the indication that they're doing stuff like that is when they're just constantly with their fist you know doing this the whole time <laughs> right right you can't see me and and you'll hear the mix and he's still pumping his fist. Oh, he's doing that with one hand. Wow, he's really good, you know. So, but um, whatever, you know, they're making yeah. millions of dollars. Good for them, EDM. I don't listen to that music. So, you know, do you do you, do you get it? Like the the whole thing where they have those giant drops. Like, is that that's really the trend right now? I I, I, I sometimes I like, but sometimes it's just like. It's like okay, when do we have okay, you're building. Okay, you're still building. All right, yeah. you're still building. And then you know, it, it, sometimes it just it kind of annoys me. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I you know, I remember the uh, you remember the big like techno anthems and stuff. I mean, those yeah. drops. Now those DJs, you know, the other thing too when they do those drops is when you do that drop, you actually can hide uh, hide mistakes when you're mixing. You remember the term slam mixing? where you just slam the tracks together. When yeah. you're doing those drops, you can do slam mixing really, you know, and then you just go, boom, and then just slam it into the next song, you know, but yeah. I think there's tricks to really, to hide stuff, but you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't like duplicated it yet. So I'm just talking out of my ass right now, but Maybe it, maybe we should do it sometime, you know, like, oh, let's just let's just do a set just with all drops. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, that's what it seems like sometimes. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, especially, actually... especially when you're in Vegas. I mean, you know, like, oh, I just I don't even go out to the you know, if I'm at a conference in Vegas, I won't even go out to those clubs anymore because they just they they literally annoy me. I'm just like, that's just annoying to me, you know, good for them. Um, good for them for pushing electronic music to that, to that level. But, um, yeah, like, you know, it's almost like they took the, the soul out of the, out of the music, you know, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's funny yeah. too, because like where, where technology is at right now, you have the opportunity to even with, regardless of what kind of music it is, you have the opportunity to actually like control it in such a way yeah. that you're you're really controlling it rather than just having everything controlled by algorithms. Like I, yeah. I, I went to a hacker conference or a hacker event one time that um, met this guy Ray Lee to see him actually like with the hardware that was all just like Raspberry Pis and things hacked together. Yeah. Yeah. But um, he had, you know, he had gloves where he was basically conducting this kind of EDM song and, and you kind of see behind the curtains and, and a lot of it is algorithmic, but he was really controlling things with his hands. And yeah. He's, 
he's part of a music collaboration called the Sirium. But yeah. it's just cool stuff. It's like it's like, okay, so you're doing that kind of work, but but I actually see you doing something. Yeah. And can look behind the scenes. And it's like, okay, so you got pedals, you could actually change it up on the fly if you wanted to. Yeah. There, there's real performance there, which is I, I like. Well yeah, it's yeah, uh many, 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 many years ago in the nineties, um, I was involved in this organization called the Cyber Artists in Seattle. And the cyber artists were traditional artists and electronic musicians and computer geeks got together and we did like uh, performances and uh, we did, we installed like art around the city, electronic, electronic type art and, and um, big like video walls and stuff like that around Seattle. And um, uh, I was involved in a project where there was this guy named Bob Moses he worked for this company called Rain, and he he was a programmer. And we took a Nintendo Power Glove, and I told him, um, like, I've been trying to figure out how to use the, the Nintendo Power Glove to control my uh, my IntelliBeams at the raves, because I think it'd be really fun if I could sit up on stage and and have this Power Glove and like and dance, but control the lights. And he's like, Oh, I can write that for you. So, so here we are with this, with this Nintendo power glove that has MIDI, um, basically a MIDI controller. And it was controlling the, the moving lights, the, uh, that, uh, that we had at the party and it turned out great. You know, I, I, I think, I mean, there's all this technology, you're right. There's all this technology that's coming out where, you know, like these guys wear these suits and they, you know, they're, they're playing, they're, they're doing, you know they're doing moves and it's you know it's creating sounds and stuff i i think it's great you won't catch me doing it because i'd probably throw my back out but <laughs> yeah you no know. but i think it'd be fun you know you know it'd be cool i just thought of this now what here's here's something so you're wearing a bodysuit and you've got all these midi controllers on it and you're doing yoga and as you're doing yoga you're creating ambient music <laughs> <laughs> there we go you heard it first yeah. Podcast. It's like it's like the next goat yoga. Yeah. Like the next iteration of that. <laughs> trans trance yoga. Something. Trans, I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah. true true ambient trance yoga. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> that so, yeah. would be awesome. Yeah, if, if you can patent that, I'll I'll invest. I don't know. I feel like I, I've already taken a lot of your time, but it's been a good conversation. You know, we, we took a, a good turn into music at the end, but I, I like talking about that stuff. So I appreciate you indulging me. Um, well, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, there's something you should check out. My little brother owns his own, like, it's called Experiential Marketing. It's like an advertising agency. And uh, he's actually in, in Brooklyn right now. He's producing the show called The Goldie Awards. And um i believe it's part of, i think adidas puts it on but it's a dj uh a dj awards and you should check it out it's called it's called the goldie awards so g-o-l-d-i-e awards.com and you need to check this stuff out because and you need to check it so it's the second annual uh the first time was last year um you got to see what these kids are doing. I mean, it's amazing. All the different yeah. categories. Um, I mean, this could become like really big and it's only the second year, but yeah. Well, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn fairly often. So yeah, okay. it's, it's actually like a live event or it's, a... yeah, it's going on. Well, 
what time is it there now? It's like what six? Four forty-five. Four forty-five. Yeah, it's going on right now in Brooklyn. Oh, <laughs> I don't think I could make it to Brooklyn right now, but uh, <laughs> but I'll check it out. So, how can people find you? You said SoundCloud. Oh uh, no, you can just find me on LinkedIn. You know, okay. keep that SoundCloud thing uh, kind of private. But uh, uh, okay. yeah, no, just just LinkedIn, Garrick Sturgill. The company I work for is called Isofusion. You know, we're we're a classic uh, co-location company. We also do uh, uh, hosting. Uh, we also run a network. We also do fiber to the home networks. Yeah, we're just the all-around technology company. We'll do whatever you want us to do for money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything? Is there anything specific that is like one of your your big products right now? Well, like our big product that we're pushing, it's called Gigabit Now, but we're it's it's a fiber to the home product. We have a couple couple networks. We do the Issaquah Highlands here in Seattle, and then we do a place called Sea Ranch um, down north of San Francisco, and then pretty soon uh, the uh, city of Fullerton, California, is going to be coming online. We're going to be um, the ISP down there. And as far as like co-location, you know, we're just a straight co-location company uh, doing hosted uh, private private cloud solutions, utilizing VMware, you know, kind of like what everybody else does. Well, we have over 700 colo customers. I mean, we're not we're not small. We're pretty big. But yeah, just you know, rock star service, and um, you know, we're just we're all um, we're all super technical. You know, it's, we're just super easy. Uh, to do business with, you know, we're still a, a smaller-ish company, so you don't get caught in the shuffle. Like your email doesn't get stuck in some inbox for for days. You usually respond back to inquiries within a day. Yeah, so. well, I'll tell you. I mean, that last mile really is what what needs to get fixed right now. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, they're just working with telcos and and with uh, the big network operators, it's torture sometimes. Like it yeah. Really, it can be 90 days and you're still not hearing anything, you know, you're supposed to get an install and they, they just won't do it. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I mean, you know, and to the home too, there needs to be more competition in the marketplace for fiber to the home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah everywhere really sucks. Yeah. Other than Comcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other than Comcast. <laughs> like we, we have, we have really three providers at our house and that's more than most people. We have like, um, three big broadband providers. We got AT and T, we got Verizon, and we got Comcast. So there's some like, but we're in the Philly area, so that's where Comcast started. Like I got Comcast cable internet in like 1998. So they've been around for a long time, and and it's only been fairly recently that it's opened up, and we have some other competitors. Yeah, I mean, right. up, upcoming events. Uh, we're throwing a we're th we're co throwing or throwing a party at Amazon uh, reInvent or AWS reInvent down in Vegas. I think we're supplying the magician for the party. But yeah, we're partnering with one of our partners for, for the party event. It's going to be at the Cosmopolitan. It's going to be at one of those super clubs. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll bring my earplugs. <laughs> yeah. So, but yep, that's about it. Yeah. Well, Unless you want to do a part two, we can go deep dive into a bunch of, you know, crazy industry topics. 
that never yeah. really discussed because no, because <laughs> everybody's afraid of you know of what of what was said and what's going to be said. Right. <laughs> I'm not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I had a great I really enjoyed the conversation, so I'd love to do this again. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you. thank you so much, Garrick. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. That's our show. I'd like to thank Garrick for coming on the show. Also, I'd like to encourage everyone to please give us a rating on iTunes. Those five-star ratings really help out the show. And thank our sponsor, Greenlight Design. Remember to mention the Good Data Podcast to get that free assessment. Our music is algorithmically created by Juke Deck. Check them out. Uh, try it at jukedeck.com. J-U-K-E-E-C-K.com. For Good Data, I'm Drew Farnsworth. We'll talk to you next time on the podcast.